Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So this morning we're going to continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to look at uh, chapter 5 verses 17 to 20. But just to give us a brief reminder of where we've been as we move forward as a congregation towards when we have what we'll call Covenant Sunday, uh, which will be in September, where we kind of formalize our membership as a church in this mission, vision, and values uh, that, that God is calling us to do here. So what we've done, if you remember, we started in January. And we began to spend several weeks on just our mission statement, our vision statement. Like, what, what does it mean that, that we want to exist to glorify God? What does it mean that we want to empower all of Christ's people to worship Jesus with all of their lives? And why is that so important to us? And why is it important that we want to be a part of reaching every man, woman, and child? Like, don't we just want to have good services? Don't we just want to one day just build a building and be comfortable? No. Like... We really want these things to be the main things, and, and we wanted to lay out why that is. And we're always going to talk about this, because all through the scriptures, we see how God continually reminds his people over and over and over again. Look at what I've done for you. Look at who I am. Look at what I've called you to for the sake of the world. And it just is like a repeated pattern that he does, because, as I said a moment ago, we easily wander I do, we do, churches do. Then we built on that and said, okay, if that's why we exist, then we wanted to look at the question of, okay, who are we along that journey? And we looked at our four core values that guide us as a church. This kind of frames the border of the picture, so to speak, in light of that, that we want to value God above all things, that we want to value his truth, above all things and not shape it to us but have it shape us for the glory of the God that we want to have as our highest value that number three we value love that we are so transformed by the God who first loved us that we want to then bend that love out to one another and to the world man wouldn't it be amazing if the people of this community looked at the people of Missio Church, and maybe they couldn't put our finger on that we value God and truth, but they could say, but they really love us and this community. And that's displayed through their sacrifice, through their generosity, through the way that that there's a welcoming spirit and desire for them, that even in my mess, I can still show up and not feel shamed, right? But called to something greater. And then, so God, truth, love, and then the final one is mission. That we really do value the mission of God in the world. And because of that, that means that sometimes that causes us to make decisions that may not always seem like the best thing just for us. That being on mission means that we lay our lives down out of the love of God to maybe release assets that we want to keep. To, to send things out that we may not want to send out. Sometimes, Lord willing, I pray this happens, that some of the best leaders that we have, we don't keep 
but we send to different places so that God, so that the gospel can be established in other places around our world and community. So we looked at our mission statement. We looked at our values. And then we looked at, okay, then what types of things do Christ's people do? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it starts with knowing the why we exist. By being these types of people that value God, truth, love, and mission above everything. And then we laid out these five discipleship outcomes that we're going to continually talk about, that we see if a disciple is someone who walks in the manner in which Jesus walked, we look at these five outcomes and go, we see these evidenced in the life of Christ out of the scriptures. And so that's how we want to empower all of Christ's people with their life. And so building on that, now we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus our King not laying out a moral list of commands. He is not, do, we're going to talk about this, doing away with the old. He, he's, he's inviting us and telling us this is what it means to take the why, the who, and the what and to live as kingdom citizens. If I'm the king who's redeeming a people to myself, this is how all of this begins to look in daily life. And he begins to build on this, not in a way that does away with what came before him, but that builds on what came before him with greater clarity and focus. And so we look at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So get the picture, right? Jesus, uh, the, 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 the gospel of Matthew has these five big sermons, so to speak. This is the most robust. And many people in history, many theologians have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and said, listen, the, all of the word of God is equal, but there are parts that kind of sparkle in ways that are like, oh my goodness, uh, Many look at the Sermon on the Mount as maybe one of the most important things that has ever been said in human history in one concise thing. It is the foundation of Western civilization in many ways. This is a big deal that he's doing here. And, it's, and what Jesus is doing, don't, don't miss the significance, where in the book of Exodus, for example, you have this guy named Moses that God chose to be the one he worked to deliver a people out of Egypt. And then he brings them to a mountain and he calls God's people to gather around this mountain and Moses goes up on the mountain and what's he come down with? Ten Commandments. And that establishes this law that God gives through his deliverer to his people that he has delivered out of bondage and is like, this is what you need to do to live as my people and to display righteousness and holiness to the world. And what this law began to be was, was a, a task list, so to speak. Now don't miss that Jesus is on a mountain. And he brings his disciples to him, and all of the multitudes are watching this. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, I've called you out of all of this to belong to me. 
and I am the true and greater Moses. This is what the first part of Hebrews is about. Moses was a shadow to me. And I'm actually going to show you what that entire law and what, that, what this entire thing I'm doing is really all about. And so he starts with the Beatitudes, which is not unprecedented in the scriptures. It's very like Psalm-esque. And, he, and what he's essentially doing, Darren did a beautiful job talking about this the last two weeks. The Beatitudes are, this is the posture of people who belong to me. The people who belong to me are not those who think they're rich and powerful and have it all together. They're not those who just walk through the world willy-nilly and think everything's up and to the right. <laughs> everything's awesome, right? We're not living the Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. That's, oh, sorry to all the parents. I just did that to you. How about I'll put something better in your head? Don't stop. Believe. Okay. Um, you know, and so you read through these Beatitudes and you get a picture of what the posture of a kingdom citizen is. And the people that are in that posture, called out of the world, he then says in the next section, and those people, guess what you are? You are salt and light in this world. You live differently. You act differently. Your purpose here is different. You, you are a preserving element to the world around you because you display something that is bending towards chaos. That is, I mean, I mean, I think the only, I'm learning this by the way, I'm not speaking as an expert. There are people in this room I'm trembling to say this in, but if you don't like tend a garden, where does that garden go? It doesn't go up and to the right, right? Like it doesn't get more beautiful <laughs> to some degree. Weeds, thorns, thistles, Right? Things descend downward. And so he's like, you as a people like this are salt. You're preservatives. You're showing that I'm actually bringing, God's doing something different. He's making all things new where the world is wanting to descend into chaos. And he says, and you're also light because Jesus is the light of the world. And he plants his light in us and says, you shine that light everywhere you go of a different kingdom, of a better message than anything the world has to offer. But you can imagine as people are listening to this, as his disciples are listening to this, it's very possible that they're not fully grabbing who's talking to them. And you're going to see that Jesus is going to continue to reveal, as you read the Gospels, he continues to give a little bit more of who he is. A little bit more of who he is. It's almost like this. So a number of years ago, my family will remember this. I had a dear friend named Chris Krieger who leads an organization in Buffalo, New York that works with veterans. And because he does this, he gets a lot of cool perks. And so he invited us to hang out with these veterans at a Buffalo Sabres hockey game. And we got like the private box, right? Do you remember this? So we go to this private box. I mean, it's posh. It's beautiful. We're hanging out. There's like food. You get like, you're, you're perched up and you feel better than everybody else. Like you in the seats. <laughs> you know, it's very bougie, Darla. You know, it's, it's very great. And, and I'm sitting kind of at this table. The game hasn't yet begun. And this older guy walks in and he's just like hanging out in the box. He's not connected with us. Like, he just starts talking to me like I should know who he is. And I'm just like, hi. And he, he goes, hey, I'm, I'm Danny Gary. Nice to meet you. I go, 
I'm Jim Murphy, nice to meet you, you know, and we just start talking, and, and my kids walk by, and if my memory's right, he says something like, hey, would your kids like an autograph? And I'm like, do your kids want my autograph? <laughs> like, like, I'd be happy to trade autographs with you, like, is this a new custom in Buffalo I wasn't quite sure about, you know, and, and then, so, but, but I'm thinking in my head, like, well, sure, I guess they'll take your autograph, and then he pulls out a laminated picture of him playing hockey in a Sabres uniform, and I'm like, Oh, that's cool. You played for Buffalo. He's like, yeah, I'm here. Just kind of, I'm a representative of this organization. Just, I'm like, oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. That's really cool. So he signs a couple things. You remember this? I don't even know if we have this stuff anymore. And, uh, and so then he gives them, and I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I just met a former Buffalo Sabre. That's great. And then I sit down, and I'm watching the game, and I'm looking up at the rafters. And I see, oh, his name's in the rafters. His number's retired. And then I found out, oh, he's in the NHL Hall of Fame. <laughs> then I found out he won a Stanley Cup and was on Wayne Gretzky's team. And I'm like, bring him back. <laughs> like, I want to talk to Danny Gary. I've got more stuff he can sign. <laughs> you know, and and you, can also, you can almost imagine that as Jesus is talking, you guys, you, you know that, that in this time of Christ, there were a lot of people claiming to be Messiah. There were, that Jesus was not the first nor the only, right? This was on the heels of John the Baptist doing his thing. So there's all this stuff being stirred up. The ground was, was prime for the Messiah. People were looking for him. And so you got these people popping up different places, and now Jesus begins to gather a following. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching in synagogues and doing things that are people are like, okay, this guy seems different, although I don't know why. Now he's calling disciples to himself. Again, not abnormal. Other messiahs would have gathered disciples. I'm trying to find some, to be honest. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but like now he goes up on a mountain, and he starts like speaking in ways that are just a little more causing the crowds to marvel in ways that's just a little bit different than someone else, than some of these other messiahs. There was a weight to John the Baptist's ministry that was different than anything else around them. And then this Jesus comes, and there's an even greater weight to this Jesus. And now he's talking about, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And people are, like, listening, because his disciples are like... Okay, you've called me to this. Oh, now you're to be salt and light. And you could imagine that they're thinking to themselves, all of these ideas of what Jesus is really here to do. Maybe he's here to do something new. Maybe he's here to like, like take all of this system and all of this oppression that we're getting from, from the religious establishment of our day these people called the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees that were like the religious PhD and the lawyer and look at us and I got the right robe. Look at my gear. Of course, I'm a great guy. I've got long robes, right? And it felt like this thing for the average person that I can't attend. To, I, I can't, you know, I can't get there. Maybe he's doing something totally new. And then he's got those Pharisees that are looking at him going, he's a heretic. This is a heretic. I don't like what he's doing. He's creeping in on my territory. I don't like it. So you got this, all this anticipation. And so now, as Jesus gets ready, the passage we're going to look at, it's like a bridge to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he's setting up kind of the lens through which we need to hear every other part, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not a random collection of sayings. It's one cohesive sermon that is speaking one particular point that rests on what Jesus is saying here. And it all has to do with, I'm the king of a better kingdom who has citizens that live differently than anything you've ever known and anything you've ever seen. And it's the way God intended from the beginning. And so he starts after he talks about the salt and light passage. And he says this. This is the word of God starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus begins to center their perspective. And now what he's doing is, I want you to get a greater glimpse of who it is that's talking to you. And what it is I'm actually doing. And the first thing he says Guys, don't think that I've come to abolish this law that you view as oppressive. Pharisees, don't, I'm not, you're not a Pharisee, Kevin. I'm just, they're behind you. They're behind you. <laughs> yeah, you know, Pharisees, don't think that I am trying to bring some new revelation here. I'm not. I have not come to abolish the, the Old Testament. When he says the law and the prophets, here's, here's what that means. He's taking the totality of the Old Testament scriptures at that point. That, that is how they talked about them, the law and the prophets. Sometimes they would say the law, the, uh, the law of prophets and psalms, right? It means just the whole revelation of God that was there to that point. That's the Old Testament that you have. He goes, don't think that I've come to abolish that. It's actually not what I'm doing. I've actually come to fulfill it. Guys, that's a massive statement that would have caused the people to go, what? Like, that's different than anything else that we're hearing before. Because in a sense, Jesus is saying this. It's the wrong starting point to ask, how does Jesus relate to the law? That's the wrong starting point. The right starting point is to go, how does the law actually relate to Christ? Because Christ is the divine son of God. He is the law, he is a law, he is the lawgiver. <laughs> and he's saying, this law was given. I'm actually above the law. I gave it. It belongs to me. This is my word, and I'm the living word in front of you. And he, this is what he's saying. All of that was pointing to me, was promising me. It was a shadow pointing you to me. And I'm the real McCoy. I'm actually here to fulfill it all. Imagine an empty cup 
that would be like the, the, the cup that's empty, that's like all the Old Testament promises and sacrificial system and all the ceremonial law and all the promises and all the heroes of this Old Testament. Everything is like that empty cup. And Jesus goes, I'm the liquid that fills that cup up. It all points to me. See, the law was given to reveal God's holiness to us. It was God saying, this is what holiness looks like. This is the way life was meant to be lived. The law was given to teach us what sin is. Like, I, like God is like, I need you to know about this disease that's killing you that's ripping you apart, that has broken your relationship with me. So I want you to know that I'm holy. I want you to know what sin is. And the law was given to drive us to the fact that we needed a savior. This is a point that cannot be missed. Like this is the weird thing. The law, in some respect, Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians, was given as like a babysitter to us until the Savior came. And that law, God never intended for you to have the burden that it was on your shoulders to live it. Because when you read the Old Testament law, here's what you should ultimately come to the conviction of. God is a whole lot holier than I am. And I'm a whole lot weaker than I thought. And I'm in much more of a desperate need than I realized. Paul says in Romans 3 that the law actually holds us all captive so that one day when we stand before God, there's nothing that we can say to make him be impressed. And we actually bring nothing into that conversation but condemnation. But Jesus came and went, wait, but, but, that's not where it ends. This is not where it ends because I've actually come to fulfill it all. So I'm coming to fulfill every aspect of the ceremonial law. All the priesthood was pointing to me who is the great high priest. All of the sacrifices were really pointing to the sacrifice that I'm about to go lay my life down for. That Passover lamb that you celebrate every Passover, guess what? John was right. I am the lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. You look at David and think he was awesome? Man, I'm actually the true and better David. I'm the king that was chosen by God, sent by God to establish a kingdom, to fight for the heart of my people and to destroy our enemies in a way that I will sit on that throne forever and ever and will establish the boundaries of peace throughout all the world and you will be my people under my good kingly rule. Every promise that you read in the Old Testament that points to them, I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I am the Joshua, the better Joshua, who takes my people into the land and conquer it for you. I am the true and better tabernacle. All the tabernacle and temple, I'm that. I'm God with you. I'm the center of worship. I'm the right sacrifice. You see, like in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 24, I love this, where Jesus has resurrected from the grave and he's got his disciples with him. And it says this, he says, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's the Old Testament at that time. And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Can you imagine what that Bible study was like? Like Jesus himself going, let's walk through the Old Testament, shall we? Let's show how this all points to me and that I am the fulfillment of it all. Right away, this is that moment, it's a terrible analogy, but of me sitting watching that Sabres game, looking at the rafters and going, oh, that's not just some dude. That's a Hall of Famer. What their minds are going to begin to awaken towards is, oh, this isn't just some guy that I like his teaching. Is this the Messiah? Is this God among us? And then he builds on that. And he says, so not only am I the fulfillment of it all, but then he says this, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What Christ does here is say, not only am I the fulfillment of the scriptures, but Christ is actually the upholder of all the scriptures. When he says not a dot or an iota will pass away from the law, here's what that means. That's kind of weird language. But in the Hebrew alphabet, these were the smallest letters and marks you could make. Very tiny, insignificant marks in the Hebrew writing. And he's like, not even the smallest aspect of God's revelation will go away. It all stands. It all stands. And anyone who even relaxes the little bit of it, you'll be called least in my kingdom. This is why we want to be a church that values truth and stands on the revelation of God. We do not want to sit and fall into the idea that there are things about this book that we have the right to change. That we have the right to diminish. In Jesus' day, there were scribes that would think that there were parts of the law and the word of God that they could not highlight as much as others. Sounds a lot like our day, isn't it? Well, we don't need to listen to that. Oh, that was merely contextual. We don't, that was a different time then. What we really need to highlight is God's love. We don't really need to talk about his justice and mercy. Yeah, I know that God said this about marriage, but really it's the law of love. Just keep highlighting love. Jesus is like, you don't have the right to do that. Because not one aspect of the law will go away. And anyone who seeks to change it, diminish it, highlight things over others, you'll be called least. That's a significant statement, isn't it? So here's what that means, guys. It means this. If you want to try to earn God's favor, Jesus says, go ahead. Follow the law perfectly. In every aspect of that law, you are welcome to do it. 
But what the law will repeatedly do to you is hit you like a hammer on an anvil. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And James tells us if we sin in the smallest of way, we have broke the whole. It's like, you know, when you drink milk in a glass, and then you're like, I want to drink some water. And you like think you clean that glass out, and then you put water in it, and you're like, ah, there's still milk. <laughs> I thought it was gone. <laughs> right? That's kind of what's getting. So what we have here is Christ is the upholder of Scripture, and he is giving a warning to those who teach and who relax or do away with any aspect of it. And he says, but there is great blessing in those who teach it and those who live it. See, this was a culture where the Pharisees were really good at teaching it. And in some respects, they were really good at living it for the applause of people. And instantly, you would have thought that the people listening would have thought of the Pharisees. Oh, see, there he goes. See, the Pharisees are the blessed ones. Look, they, they've got all the, they, they dress right. They fast when they're supposed to and let us know. They stand on the street corners and go, look at my great prayers. Right? They, 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 they're able to spout scripture whenever they want. They, they look the religious part. But then Jesus does something just totally crazy. His last verse, look what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, Pharise the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. You know what that's like? That's like this going, only those who are amazing at basketball, who can teach it and who can play it and win championships, will attain the kingdom of heaven. And unless your ability exceeds that of Michael Jordan, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we all walk away going, I'm out. <laughs> right? What is he saying here? You mean I've got to be more religious than the most religious person that I know? I've got to be more holy and more righteous? See, all righteousness is, is God's goodness. He's like, I've got to be purer than the purest person that I think I know according to my measurements? That's what you're asking me to do? It's kind of like, I don't know if my father-in-law remembers this, but like in 2010, they were visiting in Fayetteville, and there was a light fixture in our basement that was broken. Do you remember this? I don't know if you know this about me. I'm not very handy. <laughs> My father-in-law can do anything. <laughs> and I go, we go down there and, you know, we go to the, to the store. We get all the stuff that we need. And I wanted to, at that time, let me do this. So I get up on the ladder I drop the screwdriver, pick it back up. I, I'm, I'm fumbling with this thing. It's like the easiest, and I'm just, oh, oh, I can't do it. I'm sweating. I'm getting frustrated. And God bless my father. He is so patient and kind. He's just watching me. <laughs> He's not saying a thing. I must have dropped that stupid screwdriver 16 times. I think I hurt my hand. I was on the verge of breaking it and maybe being electrocuted. I have no idea. I do think at one point, maybe you go, have you turned off the power? <laughs> nope. So then, after I'm struggling, I mean, it was like you could write a book on what you did, Dad. He let me go just long enough. 
And then in a very quiet voice goes, do you want me to give it a try? And I'm like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> and he got up in like in eight seconds, had the whole thing changed. The light bulb was put. I think you did let me put the light bulb in. You, it was, <laughs> which I think I struggled even putting the light bulb in. But it would be like in my world going, unless you are as handy as David Groves, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's like, I'm out. I can't do it. I can't attain to that. And everyone there would have thought, I can't attain to the level of perfection that you just told me I need to attain. And that's the point. That's the point. God doesn't expect you to do it. He's never expected to put a burden on you that you do not need to carry. The only burden he wants you to have is to recognize that you are poor in spirit. And to mourn that you're poor in spirit. And to call out for mercy. Because you know what the dividing line is between blessed are the poor in spirit and yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn and you will be comforted. In the middle of that is Jesus. You are poor in spirit. You come to Christ. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You mourn your sin. You come to Christ. He will comfort you. You are hungering, thirsting for righteousness. You come to Jesus who says, come to me, all who are thirsty, and you will be satisfied. You want mercy? Come to Jesus. He will give you mercy because what Christ tells us in this thing is Christ alone is our righteousness. The righteousness is not one that is meant to gain the applause of men, but how to gain the acceptance of God. And this acceptance, this restoration of our relationship does, though, become visible to the world. He is our righteousness that makes us right before the Father in heaven. He is our righteousness that we live with from our hearts, not just our external deeds, in front of the world. And this is where he's going to build into. So here's what that looks like when you're angry. Here's what that looks like when you have lust. Here's what that looks like in your marriage. Here's what that looks like in how you give. Here's what that looks like in how you worship. Here's what, but it all finds its root back into the fact that the king's people see and read scripture with Christ at the center. Which means when we read the Old Testament law, we thank God that Christ has fulfilled it. And the law no longer is the burden that, that drives us into the ground. It is, the, it is the thing that says, because Christ has made me righteous by his spirit, now I begin to know how to live my life. The king's people hold to all of the king's word. And the king's people have the sole appeal as Christ is our righteousness. There's a great question. I'm going to end here. There's a great question that I pray that we all ponder. And I'm not one of these guys that's like, if you were to die tonight. Not always sure that's a helpful question. I think it's kind of a hijacking question, to be honest. However, I do think we need to ponder the question. When we stand before God, which we all will one day, 
And he says to us, why? Why should I let you live in eternity with me? The Christian's appeal will simply be this. Because of him. I have nothing to answer that question with. You should cast me away. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be in your kingdom. I have done nothing of my own to merit anything from you. But Jesus is my righteousness. And then in Jude, the way the book of Jude ends, it says this, now to him who is able to now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and don't miss this, and who is able to present you before his glorious presence with great joy. So the king will put his arm around those that have come to him by faith and repentance and say, this one belongs to me. And from that, we live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, we thank you that Christ is the fulfiller of the law. We thank you that Christ is the upholder of the law. And God, we thank you that Christ is our righteousness under the law. And it is our desire, Father, to embrace that as a church, to proclaim that in the world, and to live it empowered by your spirit in the midst of a watching world. Thank you for not giving us a burden that we could never live up to, but for being the king who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it is our desire to be the king's people in the midst of the world with which the king is making all things new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.